Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 15. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life until unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Therefore, my brothers, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The word of the Lord. So we come to the end of a series that we've been in for the past two months since September began about relationships and the church as an extended family. And one of the things that we have emphasized again and again, week in and week out, is that we are made for relationships. We are made for deep and meaningful relationships, open and committed and loving relationships, the sort that occasionally and for brief moments we experience, sometimes in a great marriage, sometimes with a friend that you're roommates with for a while, but it seems harder and harder to hold on to these things. As I've been reflecting on these the past few weeks, I've thought through what is it that I want in relationships? And the word that kept coming back to me was long-term. I want long-term relationships. I want people that I know I'm going in the same direction with them over the course of many, many years. Because I want friends I can enjoy week in and week out, year in and year out, watching a game, grabbing lunch, the sort of people that I can share what I'm excited about or share what I'm stressed about with. But I also need to know that I can trust them, that they know me. They know my obnoxious traits, They know my weaknesses, and yet they still want to be with me. I want teammates not just for a season, but for decades. But the reality is, we're busy people. 
our lives and the pace of our lives make it very difficult to develop these sorts of relationships. We're also cautious people. Many of us have been burned. We're very aware of how easy it is to have relationships go awry, and so many of us are distrusting. And on top of that, we're just selfish. We're sinful people. We get in the way of our desire for relationships. In fact, if you were going to summarize it, I would say that most of us, on some level, are more lonely or disconnected than we want to be. Loneliness is prevalent in our society now. Just this past week, Rod and I had the chance to go up to New York City to a conference, and while there, we were commuting back and forth from Brooklyn for a couple of days on the subway. I love New York subways. I really do. They are a chaotic mess of transporting tons and tons of people. And one of the things that's great about a New York subway is observing people. And what you find in some of the most um, packed moments on a subway is that there's no room to move. There's literally probably hundreds in one subway car. Scores of people in one little space. And as you look around, it's also beautiful because there is no ethnic minorities on a subway because everyone is an ethnic minority on a subway. You get every race, every age, little kids, teenagers going to school, uh, workmen, people in suits, everyone is there. And yet I also was thinking about as we were riding along at just how lonely it is to be on a subway. Here you are in a sea of people and yet nobody talks to anybody else. You can be filled and surrounded by people and yet completely isolated. It's one of the challenges that millennials are facing today. People in their early 30s and younger. The challenge of loneliness. Two weeks ago when Sam Ferguson was preaching, he read from an essay by Marina Keegan called The Opposite of Loneliness. She wrote this, and I'm going to reread it because I think it was a worthwhile way of thinking about the challenge that is being faced by many in our culture. She wrote this as... Her, her college year was coming to an end and she was about to graduate. It was on the week of the commencement and graduation. And she writes saying what she's remembering was all this community she had while in college. She says, my college was full of tiny circles. We pull around ourselves, acapella groups and sports teams and houses and society clubs. These tiny groups that make us feel loved and safe and part of something. And then she talks about her fears about graduating. We won't have those circles next year. We won't live on the same block as all our friends. We won't have a bunch of group texts. And this scares me. This scares me more than finding the right job or the right city or the right spouse. I'm scared of losing this web of relationships we've been in over the past few years. We don't have a word in the English language for the opposite of loneliness. But if we did, I could say, that's what I want in life. I want the opposite of loneliness. Ann Kreger works with the navigators with NAV20s targeting cities with young millennials. And I was talking with her this week, and Ann Kreger said that what she finds time and again as she talks to 22, 25, 29-year-olds is that they have tons of people around them. They're very busy. They're incredibly successful at a young age and yet they're very lonely. They're socially connected through media. They have many, many friends, many followers, and yet they're disconnected from actual people. And of course, it's not just a challenge in New York City or for 20-somethings. 
it's a challenge for all of us. We're, Vienna is a, is a town of neighborhoods, and most of us live in a neighborhood. But few of us have entered into being neighbors the way that Jesus talks about it. We live on the same street, but we rarely enter each other's lives. We charge around from work to the store to the ball field, and we don't really have time for people. We're disconnected, not able to really enjoy or get to know or be with those who are actually around us. We want deep and meaningful relationships, but it's very, very hard to do this. And so at times what I find is that I'm really just longing for heaven. (laughs) I'm longing to be out of this world and in a place where it will be like that. Well, in some ways, that's the right longing altogether. And yet that longing for heaven is meant to change the way we approach life today. In 1 Corinthians 15, which we're looking at today, Paul is talking about the resurrection life, the hope of the life to come, the Christian hope as he lays it out. And he's not only laying out specifically what God has in store for eternity, but he's giving us a picture to keep in mind as we go about living our life today. So what I'd like to do is enter into what exactly is he saying, look at other passages of scripture where it points us to the eternity to come, and then think through the reality, moving from idealism to possible reality of what might it look like to develop the sort of relationships that we're talking about and have been talking about. So if we look at 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is in the midst of a longer argument about what happens when, when the end comes. And Paul is very specific. The end is about resurrection. What's to come is new resurrection life. In verses 52 to 55, he kind of sums up towards the end of the chapter. He says, in, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised and death will be swallowed up in victory. Don't get hung up in twinkling eyes and last trumpets. Oftentimes, in prophetic language, they would use things like that, not necessarily to mean an actual trumpet, but to mean a symbol of when God acts dramatically clearly to change things and open up a new way. God is going to act definitively, and when he does, things will be altogether different forever. How will they be different? Resurrection to new and eternal life. We see this in verses 42 to 44. Paul is contrasting our present life with the life to come. Right now, we live in bodies and lives that are perishable, decaying, dishonorable. But one day, when Christ comes and returns and raises us, we will be immortal, without sin, never dying. He's giving a picture of eternity that is like but far better than our life today. Now, think about this just for a moment. This, in case you haven't heard this before in Christian circles, this means that that vision of heaven that's seen like it's a wonderful life, Clarence getting his angel's wings, is not accurate. We don't bounce around on clouds strumming harps. Not that harps are bad or clouds are bad, but that's not the picture of eternity. The picture of eternity is also not that Eastern picture of nirvana, where we become one with the universe, sort of disembodied bliss. The picture of what's to come is also not the idea that we need to escape this earth and God's going to just blow it all up. It's rather God has an intention and a purpose for this creation and for us in it. 
and it involves resurrection, restoration, renewal of all things, and God establishing his reign. And so the language that Paul uses, and we see this in verse 37 and 38, is that of a seed to a plant. You want to know what eternity is like? Look at your life right now when it's at its best, when you're not walking in sin, when you're in harmony with other people, when you're loving and caring and forgiving, when you're walking in these ways, when you're doing the work you're made to do, you're getting a taste of heaven. Like a seed is like, but not quite as good as the plant. Or an acorn will one day be the tree. Our life today, at its best, is a seed of the plant that's to come. And so it's why we can talk about our life today when it is at its best as an appetizer or a foretaste of heaven. So the metaphors are like this. Life today, when it's at its best, is like walking into your grandmother's house and smelling an apple pie. But heaven is actually eating the apple pie. Life today at its best is like looking at a picture of your cute baby, but heaven is holding your baby. For others, this metaphor might work. Life today at its best is like an hour on the driving range, but heaven is being on the golf course all day with your friends. Life today at its best is like a musical score on a sheet of paper. Heaven is the symphony being played out and you as one of the people playing it. So what Paul gets at here is the continuity and discontinuity between this life and the life to come. And I think that's important because it gives value, purpose, and direction to our lives today. And we see this if we go back to the Old Testament, to the pictures of eternity that we get in the book of Isaiah in particular. In Isaiah 25, which we had read today because Paul quotes it, the picture of eternity, of when God comes to restore all things, is that of a feast, of a great communal feast, with a sort of food that is better than anything we've ever tasted. I like that picture of heaven. In Isaiah 65, it's also very world, this worldly good that's being described when God is talk, talking through Isaiah about eternity. In Isaiah 65, we get this description that says, one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth. There shall, no more shall there be heard in, the, in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. So much like he was just doing in Isaiah 25, Isaiah is using language that's very familiar to us. Building houses, planting vineyards, eating food, enjoying family. These are pictures of heaven. There's a lot of similarity between this life and the life to come, except this. As we see in both Isaiah 25 and Isaiah 65, when eternity comes, when Christ returns, both passages say that there will be no more death or tears or shame. In other words, there's going to be no more sin. 
No more reason for tears and pain and suffering. No more reason for guilt and shame. Life without sin. And not only that, but God with us. In both passages, the description is that of God very present, very real. So the ideas of 1 Corinthians 15, of Isaiah, is that we will be restored fully to our relationship and experience of God. We will be restored fully to our relationship with one another and with the creation itself. And so in that way, the picture of eternity is actually very, very similar to the picture of the Garden of Eden. Think about the Garden of Eden. Adam is created, and he's at peace, or shalom, wholeness, completion, satisfaction, harmony with God. No reason to fear God. He walks with God, and he has complete shalom with Eve, complete harmony and peace with her. Nothing to hide. He's naked and unashamed. And he's even at peace with the creation itself. It's very powerful language when you go back to the garden. That idea of being naked and unashamed. We've talked about it here. Not just physically so, but spiritually, emotionally, intellectually. There's nothing to hide. Nothing to hide from God, nothing to hide from Eve. No reason to hide from creation. I think it's why, it's one of the reasons why when Jesus talks to the Sadducees about the resurrection of the dead, he says there's neither marriage nor receiving and giving in marriage in heaven. Everyone knows that. Now part of that has to do with procreation, but actually I think part of it has to do with this idea of being naked and unashamed. You see, in this world, God has laid out an order that being naked and unashamed physically is meant to be between a husband and a wife in a lifelong committed relationship before God. But when we get to eternity, we will be able to be naked and unashamed spiritually, emotionally, with everyone. It's not just my wife that I'm committed to. It's every single person forever that I'm committed to. And I can no longer need to hide anything from you and you from me. That's where it's going. It's going to this picture of life at its best without sin. No fear of God, no fear of one another, open and unashamed. And that also means that we can live now, and we're meant to live now as we will one day live in heaven. That even when we're called in the New Testament to moral directives, love one another, forgive one another, bear the fruit of the Spirit, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It's not just you better do these things. It's God giving us a picture of heaven and saying, don't you want to live in that? Well, go ahead and do it. So that's all we have to do. We have to live like we're living in heaven, which is impossible but we're going to try and do it anyhow. I think that part of what we're called to is to develop the sort of relationships that many of us have not really fully enjoyed. And it's one of the reasons why we're emphasizing being an extended family here at Christ Church Vienna. And I think, I think that that calling to be an extended family is one that we're going to be on for several years, maybe even decades Because I think we're at a place in culture where we and the world around us desperately need it. 
We are people in a culture that are sexually broken, that are socially isolated. We struggle with singleness, with aging by ourselves, with being distant from our actual family. We're individualistic and we've so bought into individualism that we don't know how to think in relation to others very well. And we're transient. Most of us do not live in the place we grew up. So by nature, we are lonely and separated from people in a way that's just hard to push against. And so we've been talking about at Christ Church Vienna being an extended family and developing that. And so if we looked at our vision and values and the way that we talk about it, I want this church to be a place where married people and single people and divorced people and widowed people and people with kids and people who have never had kids and people whose kids are long gone and kids themselves can all find a home can all find a place to belong where anyone who enters this space or this community can be known, can experience grace, and maybe even meet God. And so in order to do that, we need to develop a web of relationships, some closer, some more distant, where we all have aunts and uncles and cousins and extra kids and to see each other in that light. You see, if you go back to the ancient world, in the ancient world, there was a way of relating to one another, and we've talked about this here. In the ancient world, you lived in a three-generation family. You had your parents and your kids, and all of you probably lived in the same house. And not only that, but all the houses around you were your extended family, your uncles, your cousins. You all lived basically on the same street, and in the same village for decades, for centuries. So basically, if you lived in the ancient world, you didn't lack for relationships. Whether you were single or married or widowed, whether you were a kid or aging, you had a place to fit in. You knew who you were, and you were surrounded, protected, provided for, and needed, necessary, loved. We don't have that anymore because we don't live near extended family. Nobody stays on the same street. And so we've talked about here developing relational connections that move from the church to the small group to friendships. So on a Sunday morning, it might look like the church. And in this room, there's a whole bunch of people. But you know what? If you come week in and week out and all you do is this, it's no different than getting on and off the subway. And it's why we have emphasized spring and fall small groups so that maybe you have a chance to enter into a smaller circle of people. And over the course of several years, you'll get to know a couple dozen people that, so that at least on a Sunday morning, it feels like your village. Everyone sort of knows a little bit about you. But also so that from that, you can enter into even deeper relationships. The sort of friendships that we're not going to force from up front but we're going to say we are made to be in deeper, connected, committed relationships than most of us have experienced. And it involves stepping from the church to the small group to friendships. So that we develop a new way of doing this, of making this kind of relational connection our reality. And it'll look like this sort of new way of looking at these circles, of, of making this new reality ours. It involves... Finding affinity, people that you're connected to naturally, and then spreading out, having people older and younger than you, and maybe somebody different like that purple guy. 
And each of us having these smaller circles, but being part of a wider community where there's rub outside of our closest circles, but we have people that are committed to us. So the picture is this. The picture is this of a community of people that are committed to each other on the closest and most nuclear level, but also have connections broader. How do we actually get there to these deeper relationships? I think it's actually this word. It's the word commitment. This is an incredibly hard word for us today. But every time I keep going back to this idea of what does it look like to develop the sort of relationships I think we're called to, I think the thing that gets in my way is that it involves commitment. We need to learn how to be committed to one another. Now, in Christian circles, we've talked about that in marriage between a husband and a wife. You need to be committed in lifelong relationship to one another. But I think we need to learn how to do it in friendships as well. In the ancient world, you didn't have to do it. You were going to be committed to your extended family and to your village because you had nowhere else to go. You were born there. You were going to die there. You were going to be needed for the farming there, for the raising of the kids there, for caring for the sick there. You had a place. But we don't have that anymore. So we need to find ways to develop the sort of commitment that was inherent previously. And that's because love and openness and being known takes time. It involves levels of trust that take time. So I'm going to encourage you to find a couple people that you're going to commit to. You maybe already have this naturally. You think about, oh, I'm very good friends with these people. But find ways to actually verbalize that commitment to the people that are closest to you, that God has placed in your life. And it's okay to start with affinity, with being in the same life stage, or with shared history. But commit to something like meeting together or meals together or living nearer each other than you do right now. Commit to even opening your life decisions to these people. And in a place like this or in our culture, it actually might even be exclusive, but that's okay. We don't think anything about a husband and wife being exclusive. That's actually a good thing and necessary for trusts. Well, the same is true with friends. It doesn't mean that you have to go around excluding people, but if you're going to commit to other people, you only have a certain amount of time and bandwidth. You can't commit to every single person you know for five hours a week. But maybe you could commit to two or three people for five hours a week. Commit to a few. Commit to a place as well. You know, at Christ Church Vienna, we talk about being for Vienna. And one of the challenges is we live in an upwardly mobile and transient society, and people move from place to place. And I know some of you can't help that. In, in work, in military, you're moving every two or three years. But what would it look like to have people who commit to a place, whether that's here or somewhere else? Our next sermon series is going to be on place. And the reason we're looking at that is because I think it ties directly to relationships. You know, I'm very good friends with a guy who lives in Roanoke. Actually, let me take that back. I have a lot of shared history with a guy who lives in Roanoke, but I never see him. There's a guy who lives in Roanoke that I was roommates with in college. 
We're super tight when we live together, and now we rarely talk. So while I would count him as one of my friends, he's not in my life. And proximity matters. Proximity matters when you're celebrating or when you're suffering. We need people who are near us. So consider the places God has put you, the street that you're on, the school that you're in, the workplace you go to, the church that you're a part of, the town where you're currently housed. These are the places God has put you. How can you commit to them? Look for ways to commit to people and place. And a third way of committing is to commit to your rhythms, or rather commit your rhythms of life to relationships. I'm going to get you a little bit of kinetic activity here for a moment. I want you to um, clap with me. Okay. Now I want you to clap with me again. When you find those rhythms, and when there is a rhythm, it's easier to join in with other people, right? So we need to be observers of our own rhythms. There are things we do on a weekly, on a daily, on a monthly basis that are ways to enter into people's lives. But very often, because we're individualists, we do them on our own. We commute to work on our own. We walk to school on our own. We mow the grass by ourselves. We go to the grocery store by ourselves. We walk the dog by ourselves. We go to the gym by ourselves. We have 21 meals a week on average, some of us more, some of us less. And how often do we do those with other people? What if we started observing the rhythms of our life and just simply brought people in with them or observed their rhythms and walked alongside of them? When are they doing yard work and can I go with them? When are they walking their dog and can I walk mine with them? Doing relationship involves entering into each other's lives, and it doesn't have to be some big and dramatic thing. It can simply be doing the things you're already doing, just at least occasionally doing it with a few others, and finding ways to do that. Committing our rhythms, our place, ourselves to a few people. And yes, that does mean sacrificing our autonomy. But we need to move from loving the idea of community to actually loving people. And that involves sacrifice and commitment in giving ourselves to them. I want to end more metaphorically with this idea of story. Story and the idea of story is big in every circles today. It's the buzzword of psychology and sociology and theology And it's used in commercials. Anyone doing a commercial now says, tell a story. Tell your story so that people get a picture of what their life could be like if their story had an iPhone in it. Most of us think about our story, my personal history, as mine. But what I've found is that when I think about my story, it separates me from you because I think about how individual I am and how my tastes and interests and history are different than yours. 
And for some of us, it's the main thing that gets in the way of relationships with others because we've dealt with sin and shame and pain in our life and we can't imagine opening up to others. But in order to do relationships well, we need to not just understand our story, but each other's. So not just knowing a couple facts about you, I need to know your interests and dreams, your biggest fears and challenges, the idols of your heart, not just facts. So to build relationships, we need to hear and listen to each other's stories. But both of us, need to find our stories in the story. You see, the reason why we're wired for stories, for understanding ourselves as a journey, as a story, is because there is a story. It's the story of what God has done in creation, creating us with a purpose. But in our sinfulness, we've fallen away from God so that all of us are against God. But in God's grace and mercy, he sent his son to die on the cross for us. And the story keeps going on into eternity so that those who are in Christ are forgiven and have the hope of eternal life. There is a story, a plot line that all of history is heading towards. And rather than isolating ourselves with our stories, we need to hear and know the story and enter in by faith in Jesus Christ. Because when we do, we start realizing that our story is not just about the sin we've done, the things that have happened to us, or even the great things we've accomplished. It's a story being told by God for all of history, and it includes us if we enter in through faith in Christ. When we enter in through faith in Christ, my identity, my future, my guilt, my shame, everything that separates me from you, gets reordered in Christ. I find my identity not in what I've done or not done or had done to me, but in what God has done for me. My future is not something I need to grab hold of or fight you from. It's something that is secured and destined in heaven. And that means I can now enter into relationships very differently. Not proud, not looking down on you because you've done horrible things and we're both sinners. I'm humble, but I'm also hopeful because even with the worst things that I've done, God has offered forgiveness and grace. When you enter into the story, the gospel story, it has the power to enable you to love sacrificially, deeply, lovingly, relationally. So we need to hear the story and align our stories with the story. We tend to think about our stories like books on a shelf. Here's mine, here's yours, here's the other guy's. But when you enter in and hear the story of what God has done, and you realize that he wants to bring his good story into into your life and write yours into his, you realize instead of a bunch of books on a shelf that we're characters in the same plot line, that we're Frodo, and Sam and Aragorn together on a journey towards what God has in store. Called to run together, walk together, live together, fight together, cry together, laugh together for now until eternity comes. And that's our hope. So we look to the end, we live in the present, we commit to a few, 
We sacrifice for many. And we build the sort of family here, for now, that God has called us to. Let's pray. God, life is hard, and we are not meant to do it alone. But so much of our sin and our individualistic world and the way that many of us have been hurt gets in the way. Extend your grace to us that we would see and know and taste the God who loves us and forgives us. Give us a picture of eternity, of life before your throne, of life as it will be laid out for centuries to come. And help us to live in that now, loving, committed, open, and unashamed before you and one another. Amen. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Righteousness, the great unchangeable.